you remain standing for the reading of God's Word this night as it comes to us from Judges chapter 6. We're going to begin reading in verse 25 and uh, complete the chapter to verse 40. There we read these words. That night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. Build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold there, with the stones laid in due order. Then take the second bowl and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down. The Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die. For he's broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is God, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jeroboam. That is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Now all the Midianites and Amalekites and the rest of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Aborazites were called out to follow him. And he sent message throughout all Manasseh. And they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. And they went up to meet them. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wood on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry in all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And, if it was, and it was so. When he rose early in the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough to do from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the ground only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was due. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inspired word, you may be seated. Fear is a friend and fear is a foe. Fear can be both a good thing and be, fear can be a bad thing. There is rational fear and there is irrational fear. And that's what it makes it difficult and challenging to navigate an emotion that takes great discernment. When should I have healthy fear? And when has my fear become unhealthy? When has that fear crossed the line? Again, as I mentioned, it's hard to navigate. For example, if you take nighttime, if you go out at night and it is dark, you probably, and should be, more cautious of where you walk and how you drive. And so, therefore, the, the dark is both 
good as well as bad, there is a right and wrong fear of it. Or perhaps I could say the word spider or snake or terrorist attack or layoff. And the list could go on and on. On the one hand, there is a healthy, rational fear and probably an unhealthy, irrational fear with all of those things. So how do we navigate the world of fear? That is a million-dollar question, isn't it? And I don't know that I can answer it perfectly tonight or navigate it for you, but I am grateful that God knows our frame and knows how feeble we truly are. He knows our anxieties, he knows our fears, and he knows our worries, both the legitimate as well as the illegitimate. And yet, he helps us in both of them, in all of them. And one of the ways that he helps us is to include people in the Bible that are like us, that struggle in similar ways that we struggle. Because as you read the Bible, and as you know, the Bible is not hero worship. It's not hagiography. The individuals in the Bible are often very flawed individuals. In fact, every major person in the Bible, let alone the Lord Jesus Christ, he's the only exception to this rule, and it actually demonstrates his deity. But all the other figures in the Bible fall short, and oftentimes in significant ways. You can just think of Noah and Abraham and Jacob and Moses and David and Peter and Paul. The Bible does not shy away from their faults or sins. And that is because they are not the main figures, they are not the main characters of the Bible. God is the main figure, he is the main character throughout the scriptures. And therefore the focus should never be on these individuals ultimately, but rather on God. We should look at how wonderful God is and how wonderful it is that God uses these individuals as well as us, how he uses sinners to accomplish his plan and his purpose. And if God is pleased to use us, either individually or as a church, it only proves one thing, that God indeed can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. And that is what we are. We are crooked sticks, and yet that is who the Lord uses. Why do I say all of this? Well, that is what we have with Gideon. Gideon is very much a flawed character. You could call him a crooked stick. And yet God does not say to him, hey, Gideon, straighten up first, and then you can be of some purpose to me. No, the Lord does the straightening amidst the use of Gideon for his purpose and for his plan. And ultimately, his purpose and plan is to save Israel from their enemies, but he is doing a lot of work on Gideon as he goes about his greater and grand purpose. The same is true of each and every one of us. God has a great and grand purpose. He has a kingdom that he is spreading. He's using his church. He's using you to be a part of it. And amongst that work is him doing a work in you as well. Well, last week we saw this character, Gideon, and the crisis that was at hand. 
that the Midianites and the Amalekites were raiding the land. Every harvest, like clockwork, they would come and raid and pillage the Israelites. Everything that the Israelites had worked for was taken. They are said to be as locusts, that is, the Midianites, the Amalekites, both in number as well as in their actions. So, so much so that the people of God were hiding in caves and dens. They were squirreling away their little resources that they had so that they would not be taken. In other words, they were living in constant and perpetual fear. And it was quite miserable. They were looking at their shelves, thinking, I don't know if I have enough provision in order to provide for myself and for my family. It was not abundant living. Yet as we said then, and we'll say again, this problem was not ultimately with the land or even with the Midianites. It was because the Lord was not blessing them, not blessing them in their sin. And perhaps there is a cultural connection that we could make here for a moment, especially in the day of a rising dollar and rising costs. As things get more and more expensive, maybe we as a nation might want to pause and think, why is this? Why is our dollar not going as far? Why is it not buying as much? Because for many years, we have been abundantly blessed as a nation. But that blessing is not ultimately because we are so smart and because we're so industrious and because we can do great things with our hands and with our minds. It's ultimately because the Lord has blessed us as a nation. And as quickly as we are blessed, so quickly that blessing can be taken away. And by all indicators, that seems to be what is going on, that there is a decline. And we would have to say that is a a judgment of God upon us, upon us as a country and a nation. And all I would say is we should consider our ways. Not that America is God's people, like the Israelites were the people of God, but there are general principles, general scriptural principles. And if you go against these principles, if you go against the righteousness of God, you will not flourish. It's guaranteed. That is true individually, that is true corporately, and that is true nationally. And the Lord, by his grace, allows us to recognize our sin, allows us to receive some of that discomfort and some of that misery so that we can be saved from our sin and foolishness. And that is what he is calling us out of. And that is exactly what the Lord does with Gideon. Gideon is called by the Lord to to be the Lord's agent of salvation, to be the Lord's judge that is going to lead them into the land of freedom and away from their misery. And what we saw last week was that this call of the Lord upon Gideon was a rocky call. The angel of the Lord comes and says, Gideon, man of valor, the Lord is with you. To which Gideon responds, if he's with us, why do we have so many problems? The angel of the Lord returns and says, I am sending you. And Gideon says, no, you have the wrong guy. You must look somewhere else. And the angel of the Lord says, no, it is you. I am sending you because I am with you. And Gideon says, prove it with a sign. What we saw then is that there was skepticism and denial and doubt. 
But despite all of that, the Lord forbears and is patient with Gideon. And he demonstrated it through a miracle. Gideon prepared a goat and some bread and broth and put it on a rock and the angel of the Lord touched it with the staff and fire consumed it. Fire came out of the rock. And in that moment, Gideon knew that this was not only the call of the Lord upon his life, but this was truly the Lord himself. This was Yahweh that he had met with. We saw then that this is, as a New Testament believer, we know this to be a pre-incarnate son of God. Like Gideon met Jesus before he was truly Jesus, before the time that he was born of the Virgin Mary. And we shouldn't be surprised by that because we know that Jesus, the Son of God, the one that is the revealer of God, the Word of God, is directly and indirectly on every page of the Scripture. All of Scripture points to him. And so it takes all of this for Gideon to finally be convinced that this is the Lord. And this is truly the call of the Lord upon his life. Well, having looked at the crisis and looked at the call of Gideon, we now move on to both the courage and cowardice of Gideon. After the call of the Lord comes upon Gideon, you might even call it his conversion, how long does it take for the Lord to call Gideon into action? Was it a day? Was it a night? Was it three years? Was it 10 years? No, we read in verse 25, that night the Lord said to him. When we are called by the Lord, how quickly does the Lord expect obedience? He expects it immediately. Not tomorrow, not the next day, not when we have an open weekend or some free time to get around it. It's now and today. And that is true if we've been walking with the Lord for one day, one week, or 10 years, or 50 years, or 80 years. The Lord always desires immediate obedience. Forgetting it was that very night. And look at the instructions that were given The Lord said to Gideon, take your father's bull and the second bull, pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Where was the defeat of the Midianites to take place? It was to take place at home. Literally, in Gideon's front yard. The altar to Baal, did you notice that? And this Asherah pole was built on their land, the land of his father. It says the one that your father has set up. Isn't there a wonderful lesson there? The first command is not go and battle the Midianites out there somewhere. The call of the Lord is to rather root out and destroy the false worship that is amongst you. And the first commandments of the Ten Commandments is the first commandment for a reason. What is it? You shall have no other gods before me. Why is that the first? Because if you go astray there, none of the rest really matters. If you go astray there, the other commandments will be broken by default, as it were, will be broken automatically. 
and therefore the priorities matter. You shall have no other gods. God is to be the number one priority. And so he calls Gideon to say, go and take care of the false worship in the land. Go and take care of the false worship that's on your land before you go and defeat the Midianites and defeat the Amalekites. Again, it demonstrates that the Midianites and the Amalekites were not the ultimate enemy. It was the enemy of false worship. It was the enemy of false gods in the land of Israel, that Israel had become so comfortable with the gods of the nations, that they had become like the nations, that they are worshiping their gods in step with them. And yet this clearly goes against the commandments of God, the very first commandment of God of the Ten Commandments. This is, goes exactly against what Joshua laid out. You remember Joshua as he led the people into the promised land and as they go and defeat the enemies, his very final words in Joshua chapter 24 are this, now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness, put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the rivers and in Egypt and serve the Lord and if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You hear what Joshua is saying to them, that you cannot serve both. You cannot serve both simultaneously. It is going to be one or the other. If you choose the other gods, then you are forsaking the Lord your God. And in fact, goes on to say in that very speech to them, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. Again, Joshua lays it out so clearly to them that if you go after these other gods, it will not go well with you. But that is the entirety of the book of Judges, isn't it? That they do go after these other gods, and as a result, they are being consumed by their enemies. But the call of the Lord starts there. Gideon, you want change in your land? You want revival? Well, that revival, that renewal starts at home. And if we desire the same in our day and age, we think about our country and the direction that it is going, and, and we want to change it on a, a, a mass scale. That is a, a good desire to have, but you know where that's going to take place? It's going to take place at home. We can't neglect our home. That's why the call of elders and deacons is that they was, must be ones that manage their houses well. And notice here, too, that God does not say to Gideon, Hey, just repurpose the altar of Baal. Or just set up another altar next to the altar to Baal and this Asherah pole. No, what is the command? To tear it down. To destroy it. To get rid of it. There is no compromise or syncretism allowed. It's not just one way to worship God. It's not all roads lead to heaven if you are sincere. No, it is complete obliteration of all other gods. And that is a good reminder for us because we may not think that we are idol worshipers, but we know our hearts. Calvin says that our hearts are like an idol factory. 
Always placing other gods before the one true God. And so Gideon was called to destroy the altar, to destroy the Asherah poles, to have no other gods before the Lord our God. And that call is still the call of obedience upon each and every one of us. And we need to remember how that battle is to take place. Paul tells us very clearly in two passages, first from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. He says we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's where the battle is won, isn't it? When we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, he goes on in Ephesians chapter six and says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Do you notice what Paul is saying? He's saying, don't borrow from the world. Don't try to get your wisdom from worldly wisdom and philosophies, but rather use what God has given to you. Use the weapons that the Lord has provided. Use his word and use his spirit and use his strength and use his salvation and use his faith that he provides as the means by which we are continually battling, that we're continually breaking down and destroying these strongholds upon us bringing every thought captive, every desire captive to the obedience of Christ. Well, look at Gideon's response in verse 27. So Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. This is the good Gideon doing that which the Lord commanded him to do. But notice what the rest of the verse says. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, He did it by night. In other words, Gideon says, I'll do it, Lord, but I don't want anybody to know that I did it. (laughs) I'll do it anonymously. I'll do it in the cover of night. And this was not because Gideon was so humble. No, he was too afraid. He feared men more than God. And again, it's easy to perhaps jump on Gideon and call him a coward. But let me ask, who are the hardest people to minister to? The people that you know or the people that you do not know? Notice why he said he wanted to do this at night, because he was afraid of his family and the men of his own town. Send me to a foreign place, not a problem at all. Send me across the street or to my extended family or across the cubicle, and that's a bit tougher, isn't it? Because I don't care if a stranger thinks I'm strange, but to stand in front of those that know me well, that is much, much harder, isn't it? It's easier to fit in, to go with the crowd. Therefore, it's so easy on Sunday to roar like a lion In praise and faith and courage of the Lord, it's easy for us to to recite Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. But then when Monday comes, it's much easier to whimper like a puppy (laughs) with the tail between our legs in fear of coworkers or others. Notice 
that Gideon's plan did not work. He was not able to say anonymous because the very next day the people find out, they do their own investigation and find out who it was that destroyed this altar and this Asherah pole. And lo and behold, they find out that it was Gideon. And so they go to Gideon's house or the house of his father. And what do they find? Do they find Gideon standing there at the gate saying, that's right, I did it. What are you going to do about it? I'd like to say that was the case, but that is not what we read. It actually seems like Gideon was hiding. He got out of Dodge. Perhaps he had found that, that hiding place up in the mountains, in the dens that he knew so well. Hiding from the Midianites and the Amalekites and now fi- hiding from his own family and from his own town's people. And so it is Joash, his father, that has to come to his defense. And the townspeople say, bring out Joash so that we can put him to death. How dare he be so intolerant? Why would he demand that we worship one God and worship one way? That is so not 12th century B.C., no doubt, they said. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? Therefore, we will be intolerant of the intolerant, to the gallows, to the death, they say. And it's interesting to read what Joash says. In many ways, he speaks with wisdom and discernment. He does not try to argue with them on their own arguments and try to make a defense because this is a mad mob. You can never argue with a mad mob. And so, rather, he says to them, Why do you all need to do Baal's work? Can't Baal take care of himself? If he's so powerful as you said he is, then Gideon should be dead in the morning with no help from you. This is very much like Elijah on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal, remember? Maybe Baal is sleeping. Maybe he is relieving himself, Elijah says. He does not answer In the same way, so Joash is saying, why do you have to do the work? Why do you have to do the dirty work of Baal? It's actually a great apologetic. It demonstrates the foolishness of their own thinking. As the proverb says, answer a fool according to his folly. That is what Joash is doing. He's, in a sense, showing them their folly in their thinking so that their folly is demonstrated. And the end result is Gideon's neck is saved by the grace of God and the the good thinking of his father. And so we see, finally, there is a time to battle the Midianites and the Amalekites. And we see, once again, some courage on the behalf of Gideon in verse 34. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpets. And the Azeburites were called out to him. And he sent message throughout Manasseh. And he sent messengers to Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali. And they went up to meet them. Do you see what Gideon is doing? He is being the judge that the Lord has called him to be. Rallying the troops. Getting them ready for war. As the Midianites and Amalekites come into town once again. And just like they had done for seven previous years, no doubt thinking that this is going to be easy pickings right again. We can come in because these Israelites will just roll over and allow it. Gideon, in a sense, is not this time. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon Gideon, and he rallies the troop. 
And so the scene is set up, the Amalekites and the Midianites on one side and the Israelites on the other side, and no doubt battle is about ready to take place, perhaps the next morning, and Gideon is clearly the one that is in charge. But then we see that the leader, Gideon, gets cold feet yet again, and he cries out to the Lord, Lord, if you will save Israel by my hands, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wood on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hands, as you have said. Do you hear what Gideon says to the Lord? He says, if you have said this, if these things are truly true, as you have said they would be, then would you not show me a sign? You see what Gideon, how Gideon goes astray. He says, if this is true, people of God, we must never ask of the Lord if something is true, if the Lord has said it. If he has said it, then it is true. It's not if it will be true. It is. It's already done. You can take it to the bank, even if it has not taken place. We can always promise, we can always trust the promises of the Lord. That is always the case. Therefore, we should never come to God's word and read the promises of God and, and store up those promises of God and say, well, if that is true, then I can trust you, Lord. No, we know it is true. Therefore, we can trust the Lord. There is no if, ands, and buts with God. And so for Gideon to ask for a sign, this is not a good thing. In fact, he is disbelieving the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord that has come to him. Even cites it as you have said. And then at the very end, as you have said, God has said to him, I am going to do this. I am going to be with you. I am going to use you to destroy the Midianites and the Amalekites and deliver my people. He need not worry. He need not test God. He need not assign. And this isn't the first time he has done it, has he? Asking for a sign. It is, in fact, the second time. And we will see next week that he does it for a third time. And so we have often adopted this language in Christian circles of of putting out a fleece to test the will of God. Do you understand that that is not a statement of belief? It's actually a statement of unbelief. That wonders, signs, and miracles have been given throughout Scripture to verify the word of God. But now that we have been given the full revelation of God, since God's revelation is complete, we know that God is trustworthy. He's shown his character again and again and again, and he has shown it fully in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have all that we stand in need of. The canon of Scripture is complete. Therefore, the word of God is sufficient. We need not ask if it is sufficient. No, it is sufficient. That is why I am a cessationalist, not because I do not believe that the Spirit of God cannot show signs. It's because he need not show signs to us. He's given us his ultimate word, which is the word of God to us. 
Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12 that some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And Jesus replied, Only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. Do you understand that? That is not a compliment from Jesus. But then he goes on to say, But the only sign I will give you is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Namely, to be in the tomb for three days and afterwards to rise to life. The resurrection of Christ is ultimately the only sign we knew and need. We know Christ is alive. He's spoken through his living and active word and speaks through us. And so signs and miracles, in many ways, undermine the sufficiency of Christ and his word. And yet, with that all being true, with all of that being said, what do we read? That the Lord is gracious to Gideon in his fear. He grants his request. He does not rebuke Gideon, but he gives what Gideon asks. First, with the fleece being wet and the ground being dry, so much so that he can wring the fleece out and it fills up a bowl of water. And you would think, surely this is enough for Gideon to know that the Lord was with him. Nope. Gideon asks again, for another sign, he, he thinks, well, perhaps this was, you know, there was a lot of moisture in the air. Maybe it was like the south. It gets very humid, and so this fleece just absorbed all of this liquid from the air, and therefore that's what made this fleece to be wet. So he says, do it the opposite way, Lord. Let you not be angry and have your anger burn against me, but I need another sign. And so the next morning, the ground was wet. And the fleece was dry. And again, the conclusion should not be, Gideon, you hard-hearted bonehead, when are you going to believe? Because if that is what you think, then I am reminded of the words of my mother and no doubt the words of your mother that when you point at someone, there's three fingers pointing back at you. Because the same thing could be said of each and every one of us how hard-hearted we are, how slow to believe, how slow to trust in God. When he has shown himself to be sufficient, when he's shown himself to be reliable again and again and again, and yet how often do we still fear? And we still have anxieties and worries. Why is this? It's oftentimes because we simply do not believe God, that he is not sufficient to meet all of our needs, or that he really, truly knows what is best, and therefore I need to worry, as if my worry is going to change anything at all. Oh, worry adds nothing, adds nothing of benefit. It only adds that which is detrimental to us. Then Jesus addressed this In Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon of the Mount, can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And the answer is obviously no. And then he goes on to say, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, Jesus says, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own 
in a quote that I've quoted and used before from Pastor Kevin DeYoung, but I think it is helpful. He says it this way, anxiety is mentally living out the future before it gets here. Faith is trusting that when the future comes, our Father will be there to give us what we need. You hear what Pastor DeYoung is saying, that we need not worry about tomorrow as Jesus is Tomorrow will worry about itself. We know that when tomorrow comes, the same God that gave us tomorrow will also be there to meet our every need. God is so gracious to give us what we need when we need it. And we need to be reminded of that again and again and again to give us those reminders and those truths again and again and again, because our hearts and our souls and our minds need it again and again and again. The Puritans, in fact, called themselves the Lord's reminderers. There's probably very little that I say or Pastor Myers says that is brand new to you, things that you have never heard before. At least, I hope there's not many things that you have never heard before. Rather, it's probably old things that you are hearing again in a new way, with fresh ears, with a fresh heart, with a fresh mind that the Lord has given to you. You're applying God's word, the same word, that same truth again and again and again. It's usually reminders of ancient truths, of the old paths, as J.C. Ryle called them. And in being reminded of those old truths, those old paths, you are given confidence to say, amen, this is true, this is what is reliable. I can bank my life on it. I need not waver to the right or to the left. I can stay on course. I can continue to do what the Lord calls me to do. I can do that which we heard this morning from 2 Timothy 4, that we can run the race and finish it and complete it. We can fight the fight and we can keep the faith that the Lord has given to us. If that is true, then that is the Lord's grace and mercy to us. We're grateful that the Lord does not say, Gideon, I've already demonstrated my grace and my mercy to you. I've already shown sufficient signs. I've already told you that this is true. And if you don't believe me, then I'm done with you. I'm going to move on. I'm going to find somebody else. If you don't understand it the first time, then I'm not going to give you a second time or a third time. No, that is not what we read from our God. Rather, we read that God gives his mercy and grace again and again and again. And that is truly overwhelming to us. But let us be reminded that the Lord is not required to be gracious or merciful. So let us not use his graciousness for our slack in obedience. Yes, second and third time obedience is better than no obedience at all, but first time obedience, immediate obedience is best of all. And so let us walk by faith and not in fear, going forth in the spirit of the Lord with the strength that he gives. And if we do so, then I think we can learn, not perfectly by any means, but we can learn how to navigate the line between good fear and bad fear. Because ultimately, if we have the greatest fear, the fear of the Lord, then that helps us to navigate 
all other fears, as we are reminded that He is with us, that He is our Lord, He is our life. It is in Him we live and move and have our being. He is our Emmanuel, God with us. And as a result, He will never leave us or forsake us. And so that fear of God and obedience to His call and walking by faith and not by sight, that promise, the promise that God is with us, that He is for us and not against us, is the promise that trumps all fears this day and always. Amen. Join me in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we are thankful for characters like Gideon who did not have perfect faith, did not learn the first time or the second time or even the third time, but needed grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy. Because, Lord, when we look at our life and see how hard-hearted we are, how uh, boneheaded we can be in our thoughts and our thinking and in even our affections, And even in our our fears and our worries, Lord, we sin against you. Lord, have you not proven yourself to be sufficient? Have you not proven yourself to be faithful? Each and every day, Lord, you've been faithful to us. And yet, Lord, we often respond to your faithfulness and unfaithfulness in worry. And so, Lord, would you help our faith? Would you even help our unbelief, O Lord? We believe, but help our unbelief, O God. Help us to walk in the fear of the Lord, in obedience to your commands, O Lord, with the courage and strength that you would give through your powerful Holy Spirit. For we pray it all in Christ our Savior. Amen.